A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Gare out of the 24 who were killed were Americans who had come to learn in Kevin. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little, it is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Geberer. Welcome, everyone, to Jewish History Soundbites. This is Yehuda Geberer with a special Sukkot episode of Jewish History Soundbites. Instead of going in-depth into one uh, topic, I thought maybe we'll just have something lighter. For Zman Simchasenu, it's happy times. you got to be relaxed, and we'll just have some uh, share with you some uh, anecdote stories from our past about the Sukkot Simchas Torah holiday. Um, an interesting episode of Jewish history was the great debate over the Korfu Esroigim. We talk a little bit about Dalad Minim throughout history. In Eastern Europe, they did not grow Esroigim. That doesn't shock anyone. Um, so it always had to be imported. And it was mainly imported from the Mediterranean basin from at different times from areas of Greece and Italy throughout most history. Um, the uh, Famously, the Alta Rebbe uh, used to get these Italian astragium called uh, Cal- Calavria, Calavria, something like that. I don't even remember what it's called. I think in certain Chabad areas, they still are makpid to get the Calavria Esraigim from Italy that the Alta Rebbe used to get. Um, so like Greece, um, Italy, like I said, I think Turkey for a period of time, other areas from North Africa, um, they used to get Esraigim. So the island of Corfu was a very popular place that they got Esraigim for a long time. And there broke out in the late 1800s and late 19th century a debate over the Corfu Esraigim. Um, and ostensibly is over the kashras of these uh, Korfu Esraigim, and since kashras involves halacha, so like I've said many times on this uh, podcast, I'm not going to get into that, and um, because I don't know it, um, what, whether the kashras or whether they were grafted and genuine Esraigim or not, and that was a whole debate amongst the Paiskim of Europe. But what's interesting about this dispute was that there were other factors involved uh, in addition to the halachic aspect. Um, um, first of all, the great Paiskim of the day, Rabbi Tzavchan Inspector, the Kovner Rav, Rabbi David Karliner, 
um, of, of the Rav Karlin, David L. Friedman, uh, the Rav Karlin, and many, many other Paiskim, many numerous, uh, many of you probably know names of other ones that um, that were involved and wrote chuvas on it from all over Europe. It wasn't just in Lithuania or even from the Russian Empire. It was really, literally from all over Europe. It became something that was really popularly discussed amongst the Paiskim of that era. But the other issues that were raised was not only about the Kashris, but interestingly, what Rubitzakhan, what I saw written from him, was about the prices. And it's something that's relevant today. That's why I thought I'd mention it. Is that he felt that um that any monopolizing the the uh cornering the Estrig market, especially, you know, in Eastern Europe, since they don't grow their own it's not homegrown, it's imported. Um, shipping rates and and uh, and bringing it across to the the areas of the Russian Empire, it's costly, and it's already costly enough. And some some shtetls used to buy one uh, collectively; they would buy one together, or the rabbi would get one and share it with the members of his congregation. And therefore, they you know, estric dealers and sellers and importers, and sometimes the growers would jack up the prices because they would know that they had somewhat of a monopoly on the market. And what Ravitsa Kalchanan was concerned with was that he writes there that even if the Korfuas Regim are kosher, but I want to um, make sure that they don't uh, jack up the prices too much, which they've been doing recently, so maybe we shouldn't use the Korfuas Regim because of that. And it has nothing to do with the kashras, really, of the asterisk, but really it's about the prices, and he wants to protect the poor people of Eastern Europe um, who are the customers and they shouldn't have to pay too high of a price. There was another issue involved and that was um, the rising opportunity to buy Eretz Yisrael Esreigim. When David Karliner weighed in on the issue, that's what he writes. He says it's not so relevant about the kashras of the Korfu Esreigim and whether it's Murkov, whether it's grafted or not, but there's an additional issue here is that now that there's Esreigim available coming from Eretz Yisrael, so we should try to make an effort to specifically buy the patronize the uh, Esreig market of Eretz Yisrael, to buy uh, from Eretz Yisrael and to support that market, and especially if it's Jewish Esreig growers in Eretz Yisrael who are settling the land and growing on the land, and we should buy from Eretz Yisrael. And that becomes an issue also. Other Paiskim raise that as a factor as well. And it's not just about Corfu and not Corfu, but it's also about the availability of Eretz Yisrael, Esroigim, on the market. On the other hand, other Paiskim had an issue with Eretz Yisrael, Esroigim. There's too many questions and problems. These are things that they never had to deal with as long as there were no Esroigim from Eretz Yisrael throughout the years. The Esroigim from Corfu and from Italy and from Turkey didn't have the problems of Shemitah and and uh, truma and and all the other uh, mitzvahs atulis ba'aretz uh, issues, and they said well, maybe we shouldn't get involved in Eretz Yisrael esregim. It gets too complicated. So that was the Corfu Esrig saga, and of course that's that's just in short. But I want to move over to another story of of um, of uh, esregim of Dalad Minim of the Mir Yeshiva. Mir Yeshiva ends up in Shanghai during the war, and a famous escape, which is a topic for another time, I think actually a series for another time, because not only is it interesting and fascinating and long, 
but it's also a very misunderstood uh, story, so we have to definitely get to the Mir Yeshiva's escape to Shanghai. But now I want to talk about how did they get Daladaminim in Shanghai? So, of course, Lulavim is pretty easy. It's palm trees. Um, Aravis is very easy. They're all over the place. Hadassim wasn't that hard. It was possible to find Hadassim. Esraigim got tricky. That's where it became um, a little difficult. So as it happens, before the Mir Yeshiva and all the other refugees from Poland, Lithuania, and of course the Austrian, German-speaking Jewish refugees who came there after Kristallnacht, before they all arrived, there was the Russian Jewish community. Before they arrived, there was the Sephardic Jewish community who had arrived originally from Iraq, but through India, and they had come to Shanghai to settle for business reasons in the 19th century. So one of them was the family of Chacham Avraham. And Chacham Avraham planted an esrig tree when they moved from Bombay in India. I think that's today Mumbai. And, uh, and he had an esrig tree on his estate. And it grew a, you know, a few esrigim, and he used to share it with members of the community. So now when the population of the Shanghai Jewish community exploded, he shared it with the refugee community as well. And that's how the yeshiva and the other uh, religious Jews in Shanghai were able to, um, were able to you get, get an esrig. They were able to use Chacham Avraham's esrig. The problem was that only worked for the first couple of years because after December 7th, 1941, the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor. So they declared war on the United States and its allies. You know, they also invaded Southeast Asia at the same time. The fall of Singapore shortly after Shang- shortly after the, the attack on Pearl Harbor, and the entire Southeast Asia, which which was uh, much of it was British, French, a little bit of Dutch colonies. Um, the Japanese were imperial. Japanese government was after oil and rubber and all types of other uh, raw uh, materials to to help their economy, um, which is. You know, of course, off-topic, that's the Japanese war strategy. But England became the enemy. That's what I'm trying to get to. And therefore, British citizens in Shanghai were problematic. And many of the Sephardic Jews, having come from India, were British subjects. So Chacham Avraham was actually arrested, along with many other Sephardi Jews. And they were deported to some, you know, exiled somewhere. And his house, his estate, he was very wealthy, was uh, taken over by a, a Japanese uh, naval officer, an officer in the uh, Imperial Japanese Navy, and he used that as his house. And so now the esrig tree is inaccessible. And so one year they paid a, a, a young Chinaman to climb over the wall, pick some esraigim, and bring it back. And they, you know, and they were able to have a few esraigim that year, but uh, that didn't work out. And at some point they they needed they couldn't get to it. Uh, supposedly the Japanese officer cut it down even. In any event, they didn't have it, so they needed to look for a Sreigen. So they start searching around the Shanghai area for maybe they could find the Sreigen. And um, they even send emissaries, uh, the refugee community sends emissaries, the yeshiva community sends emissaries to the the Chinese interior to see if they can find any Esrig similar type of fruit. They come back with what they nicknamed the Chinese esrig, and and they asked the rabbis of the Shanghai community, of Meir Ashkenazi, the Amshan of Rebbe, the people who were involved with the yeshiva community, also 
is this a kosher esrig? And they decided that it's not kosher. They can't verify that it's for sure kosher, this funny-looking Chinese esrig. And therefore, some did not use it as an esrig. Others, remember my wife's grandfather, who was in the mirror in Shanghai, he told me that they held the Chinese esrig together with the other three minim, and they said, without a bracha, and they said, Zecher lemitzvah dalad minim, which is a fascinating idea. They didn't know when this war is going to end, and they did not want to forget the idea of taking dalad minim on, on sukkah, so therefore they took this funny-looking esrig together with the other three minim, and to be able to hold on to the mitzvah of dalad minim, even when they can't make a bracha, even when it's probably not a real esrig, but in this endless, seemingly endless war with no end in sight, they want to be able to remember the mitzvah, and therefore they pick it up and they say, Zecher lemitzvah dalad minim. I thought that was a very uh, powerful story. Of course, if we move over to the to um, the pre-war um, era, um, part of the when I bring and the trips. When I bring uh, groups to, especially not in the small shtetls, but more in the major cities, places like Warsaw or Krakow specifically, you want to try to bring a place alive. And you go to a place that was the outside, I usually describe it outside of the, the Isaac Shul in Krakow or the Neuzik Shul in Warsaw to the groups where there's a big courtyard or a big square in the old Jewish quarter in front of the shul. And you want to make the place alive. And of course, these places are not so much alive today with Jewish life. And one of the ways I describe it is explaining how the Dalad Minim Shuk was set up in front of this area. And everyone from all over Krakow, from all over Warsaw, the Hasidim would all come and they would examine the Esraigim. And I don't know if they had the diamond loops that we use today, but they definitely used magnifying glasses to look for their bletlach on the Esraig. Very similar to the world we live in today, and you just try to depict that that scene, and the place does become alive, and that's really a tool that I use on my trips. That these, you know, the bustling dalad minim shuk in front of the shul, very similar to what we have today in all places in Eretz Yisrael, United States, and other areas, and um, and of course, um, that's uh, that's a way to make uh, to make the place. Uh, alive a little bit. And um, just one last anecdote of Dalad Minim, really from left field, as it were. In 1891, right before the Valozhin Yeshiva is closed, unfortunately, with, which is also a story in itself, an amazing story, and maybe we'll get to it one day. But it was what was involved in the closing was a very terrible dispute about who is going to succeed the Netziv as the Rosh Hashiva, would it be two, two, two people named Reb Chaim, either Reb Chaim Brisker, Reb Chaim Soloveitchik, or Reb Chaim Berlin, who the Netziv supported, it was his son, he wanted him to, to take the Yeshiva out of debt, and whatever, a whole story, and it was a very, very bitter and pretty, also violent, to a certain extent, uh, um between the two factions within the Yeshiva, and it led to the Yeshiva's closing, but in 1891, which was the year before it closed, um, it might have even been the last uh, sukkahs before it closed, um, the Dalad Minim of Reb Chaim Berlin were stolen by members of the other faction, by students, overzealous students who uh, were trying to, one of the tactics they used was to steal his Dalad Minim. And uh, that was 
you know, it was very disappointing for Reb Chaim Berlin, and the him and the Nitziv used all kinds of threats uh, to those to the Ganav to the ones who stole it to be able to get it back, and it was returned. The threats worked, and it was returned. And um, and incredibly enough, this event was such a major event in the Machlaikis that in the Russian report, the Tsarist police who had spies in the yeshiva and, and they were involved in this, and that's when they were involved in the closing, it actually comes up in the report that this the candidate, Rabbi Berlin Sr.'s son, his lulav and esrig from the Sukkot holiday were stolen in the events of this uh, dispute. So it's amazing it even made it into the Russian records there. So that's as far as Dalad Minim are concerned. That's just a few stories about Lulav and Esrig. Um, if we move over to Simchas Beis HaShayevas, that's also an event uh, that existed originally in the Beis HaMikdash, but a, you know, a variation of it exists till today. And it was in in the yeshivas in Eastern Europe, the Litvashi yeshivas also, in the Hasidic courts of Eastern Europe. Um, the Simchas Sheva was a major event, and the Rebbe's used to dance um, in the in in and it was a very special time. A lot of music, a lot of happiness, a lot of excitement. This, very often, it would go through the night, and people today associate it with the great Hasidic courts, and that's how it continues in many places. Shalayim, it goes through the night, or to large parts of the night in many of these uh, Hasidic areas. And there's a notion that that in the Litvish yeshivas it wasn't it wasn't as accepted. This is more of a Hasidic idea, especially the length of it and the excitement of it and the happiness of it. Of course, sometimes we think that anything that has to do with being happy or dancing or singing must be Hasidish and not Litvish. And um, and um, sometimes it's accurate, sometimes it's a misconception. But I'm not sure if it was in every yeshiva. I tried to look into into it a bit. I do I do know that in Valajin, again the original yeshiva, the original the modern yeshiva, uh, Litvish yeshiva. Any in any case, um, they had it every night. I have a couple of testimonies like that. That it was actually every night of Cholamayit Sukkis. There was an all night Simchas Beis of singing and dancing. I don't know about a band, but singing and dancing all night long, every night. It seems seems to be incredible. And they had special songs that they would sing for the Nitziv, and the Nitziv got very into it, that they were singing for the Rosh Hashiva, and um, it was a very special event, and they would really get really riled up, and a lot of dancing. Um, and that's a very interesting thing that took place in Valajan. We go back to the Mir in Shanghai, an even more interesting story was the Simchas Beis HaSheva of their first Sukkot in Shanghai. It was right after they arrived in Shanghai. They were in uh, in Japan for close to a year and they arrived about El time in, in 1941. You're talking about um, about October 1940 run. Right before Sukkot is when most of the yeshiva arrives. They arrived in shifts and they set up shop and here they're being settled in to the base Aron Shul on Museum Road in downtown Shanghai, in the middle of the business district, which of course is a major story in itself. But in the courtyard of the base Aron Shul, there's enough room to build a huge sukkah. They even built a few sukkahs. They probably had more room, and it was probably a bigger sukkah than what they had back 
in Poland. Not only that, but I would add, as a student of the Mir Yeshiva in Yerushalayim, that it was probably bigger than the sukkah they have today in the Mir Yeshiva in Yerushalayim. Because the way, that they, the way it's described is there's a huge, massive sukkah in the courtyard of the shul. And they made a Simchas Beis Sheva there. Not only that, but they invited the Polish consul, right? The Polish government, the country of Poland had ceased to exist. There's a Nazi occupation. They had crushed Poland during the war. But there was a Polish government in exile that was based first in Paris, but the fall of France in June 1940, it moved to London, and they, it operated, the Polish government in exile operated out of London till the end of the war, when after that the Allied countries uh, severed uh, diplomatic ties and instead recognized the Polish communist government, which Stalin had set up in Warsaw. But that's also a story for another time. In any event, the Polish consul of the Polish government in exile, who was in Shanghai, he was invited as an honored guest. It's a non-Jew, a Pole, and he's the consul. He was invited as an honored guest of the Mir Yeshiva, Simchas Beis HaSheva. We have an Amshin of Chassid who kept a diary, and he writes about this. Uh, he was an eyewitness, and he he describes how he, they were mechabed him, they honored him, they invited him in, and he enjoyed the dancing and the singing. And then one Mir Talmud, who knew a very fluent Polish, he got up on a chair and they sang, he sang a song in Polish for him in honor of the country of Poland, I don't know if it was the national anthem or some other song, and in honor of the Polish consul. And he was very impressed. It was a very powerful scene and they expressed their patriotism as they were all Polish citizens to the country of Poland who was going through a hard time at the time. Also a very fascinating story of a Simchas Beza Sheheva. If we move on, just for the last couple of minutes, a little bit of a taste of Simchas Torah. Um, one of the themes that seems to be of Simchas Torah, and it's always a controversy today, and of course I'm not getting involved in education of today, and should people get drunk and drink, it's not my, uh, it's not my department, and everyone will decide in their own family and home and whatever their shul they should do. I'm not getting involved in that, I'm just telling some stories from the past. But, in the Lithuanian yeshiva world of the pre-war era, the Litvish yeshivas, getting drunk in Simchas Torah seems to have been more of a thing than, than getting drunk on Purim. It was a major event, and they got, they got very drunk, and it was a part of the happiness of the day, part of the celebration of the day, and it was, seemed to have been pretty accepted and prevalent, and like I said, even more than, um, than, uh, and Purim, in fact, in the again getting to the present, the Mir Yeshiva, until today, uh, when I was there, at least uh, the Mir Mashgiach, he should should have a refuah shalem or baron chodesh. He he used to walk around during that kafis with bottles of 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 bronfen, of lechaim, of whiskey, of uh, schnapps, and give out lechaims to the participants of the hakafis to be able to drink during the hakafis. It was a thing of the Mir Yeshiva. <laughs> And many other yeshivas also to drink and get happy and get excited with the Simchas Torah. And, uh, and if we're talking about the Mir, so in fact, the, the way that it's described in the Mir Yeshiva of, uh, of the pre-war era, um, the, the Akafas are described in almost rebbish terms with the, in the time of Rabbi Lavavitz, the great Mashkiach of Mir Yeshiva. The Akafas went on for hours and hours, almost to the end of the day. It seems like it would end it. Shortly before Shkia, it would like go almost the entire day, 
and Rabbi Rocham would stand in the middle with a Sefer Torah, and they would be dancing, they would be swirling dancers around Rabbi Rocham. He was the center of the, te- of the of attention, almost again, almost like a Hasidish Rabbi, and he would stop the Hakafis every several minutes and say some very powerfully inspirational short Musser ideas and thoughts and schmoozing that would really carry the guys throughout the year. They're about to start the winter. Some of them have been written down or even included in Rabbi Yerucham Shmuzin. Rabbi Shlomo Volba transcribed also some of Rabbi Yerucham's thoughts and sayings on that day. And um, just to give it even more of a, an idea of what it means to dance for hours like that, they weren't dancing to exciting and fun Hasidish songs. They were dancing to some pretty dead Litvish and Igunim. And I know that because I once got an old base of Talmud, uh, um, um, Talmud, to sing me one of those original songs that he heard from his Rebbeim based Talmud, the Altamiras, of what they were singing. And I can tell you, it was, uh, you know, to sing for hours to that song, you got to be pretty talented and be really, really, maybe that's why they had to drink. I don't know. And uh, to be able to get into it. And uh, it, was, it, it was an experience that all those who were there, and there's quite a few testimonies about it, it was something that was unbelievably unforgettable. Rabbi uh, Rucham, uh, the way he carried the Akafis and the dancing and the power and the energy that was there is something that, uh, that lasted with these people. The impression and the influence that it lasted with these people was, uh, was everlasting. you got to say something about Hasidus a little bit, a tiny bit, if uh, for Simchas Torah. So first of all, in Chabad circles, the Taim Chetmimim Yeshiva, which is one of the pride, central educational achievements of Chabad, of Lubavitch, starting from the Rebbe Rashab um, in 1897. Um, till today, a major, major part of Chabad, Chabad Lubavitch life is the Taimchei Tamimim Yeshiva network. So Taimchei Tamimim is related to Simchas Torah, and it's kind of a celebration every year. Of course, we're talking about getting drunk. That's a major component of the Chabad, Akafis as well. I was recently, I, I try to stop into the Chabad nearby me, if at least a little bit uh, on Simchas Torah, just to show my face. And my wife's great uncle was a close chassid of the Lubavitcher Rebbe. So one of the the chassidim was telling me during the hakafis there a couple of years ago. He said, "I remember your great uncle. He started the Hatzalah in Crown Heights, and uh, your wife's great uncle. He started the Hatzalah in Crown Heights. And when we would run out of alcohol on Simchas Torah, he would go to his Hatzalah truck and take out rubbing alcohol and share it with us. So that was that's definitely a." Uh, well, another way to do it, I guess. But going back to Taimchei Tamimim, Taimchei Tamimim was started on Chai El of 1897, which was the, the, uh, the which in Lubavitch they celebrate as the birthday of the Alter Rebbe, the Baal Shem Tev. But the name Taimchei Tamimim, like we say in the Akafis of Taimchei Tamimim, Aishiyana, whatever it is, was given by the Rebbe Rashab on Simchasaira, and Taimchei kind of became the anniversary celebration of the Taimchei Tamimim. Yeshiva network in Chabad circles. Of course, I can't go by Simchas Torah without mentioning probably one of the most famous and fascinating and controversial stories in the history of Hasidus, which will have to be another episode, and this is just going to be a tease for this episode because I can't go into the whole story at this point. But the great Nefila, the great fall of the Chayzu of Lublin took place on Simchas Torah. He and his friends, the Kajnitzer Magid and the Aptarov, were trying to bring Mashiach. They were trying to influence the upper spheres in heaven 
to bring the Mashiach on Simchas Torah, the Kajnitzer Magid dies right before Simchas Torah, and the whole thing falls apart. The Chayza didn't hear about it, and during the Simchas Torah celebrations in Lublin, he falls out from his second story window, and that becomes a whole story, becomes a major story in how the Chayza is seen, both by his Hasidim, by also by his opponents, his opponents meaning Misnagdim, and also the Maskilim, the Misnagdim 